This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, April 15th, 2017. Today's host, today's, uh, excuse me, today's guest, today's special guest is author John Mollison. But before, before we let John speak, we've got I want to, uh, we have a couple pieces of news, which we'll get to in just a sec. And uh, I also want to give my fellow hosts the opportunity to say hi. Take it away, guys. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Mollison. Uh, I, I just wanted to let you guys know that, and this is new to me, if you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, you can order all the biscuits you want, and you don't have to eat any of their nasty sides or greasy chicken along with them. This that has changed true. my life. How's it going, Brian? Well, first of all, thanks to my co-host. Thanks to special guest John Mollison. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Uh, I, I should point out that John is currently engaged with uh, his comrades in arms, Nathan Housley and the Frisky Pig, and, and doing an in-depth review of my second novel, Soul Dancer, Dragon Award winner for Best Horror Novel. And they're doing that over at the Puppy of the Month book club. So tell them uh, dead thanks for that. So that, that's definitely, uh, that has definitely made my month. Well, listen, I assure you the pleasure is all ours. We're having a heck of a time going through it. But I've done my job. Exactly. It's a, it's a meaty book. And I got to agree with Frisky Pagan. Uh, he said it, it might be a better introduction to the Soul Cycle universe than the first book because it starts out at a much more intimate level and then slowly expands throughout this this incredible universe that you've built um so anybody that that wants to read the dragon award winner first i would encourage you to not be afraid to do that and then go back and read what amounts would would amount to the prequel in ethereal that's that's really interesting and that is super helpful feedback because i would always wondered about that um i've mentioned it on the show before but actually wrote Soul Dancer first and then went back and wrote an ethereal. So it sounds like that's kind of coming through for you guys. I'm kind of catching on to that. Yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about having a, a fully realized universe like you have with, with the history all laid out, um, that there are a lot of different ways to enjoy it. Yeah, I definitely found, and I mentioned something like this before, that often I was lost when reading ethereal. And, uh, and going through Soul Dancer sort of helped me understand what I had read in Ethereal when I was reading it. Well, we say that, but the, the one thing that I'm not too sure about is whether whether you would have the exact same issue going the other way. You know, what Brian has crafted is something that's that's so different from what you find in most science fiction fantasy today that you really, maybe you do need a good three, 400 pages to kind of retrain your brain to appreciate what he's done. And that, you know, I wonder how many people, it would be interesting to, 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 to hand soul cycle to somebody and get the same kind of in-depth analysis out of them that you're getting out of the Puppy of the Month book club and see how that changes their perception of of ethereal. Ooh, a social experiment. I, I like it. <laughs> we should get Jeffro on that. He sounds like the perfect guy to run those tests. I have an idea. While while they're on sale, we should just buy a bunch of them and send them out to all of our friends and family and then have them read it. And and that'll be a good natural experiment. Yes, do that, please. Uh, by the way, can I can I stop and introduce the guest? Is that would that be out of order at this point? Welcome to the Soul Cast, where we talk about all soul cycle books all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, go ahead. Our guest is uh, John Mollison, author of uh, the five dragons uh compilation which is five different stories about oddly enough five different dragons and also author of uh sudden rescue a uh, science fiction book that is uh exploding across the pulp revolution blogverse and and even beyond and uh he also blogs at seagull rising which is uh links by the way to his books and seagull rising are of course right now in the description to the video so you can check those out and he talks a lot about uh the pulp revolution about science fiction and fantasy and all that great stuff so welcome to the show john 
Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, and and we're gonna dive right into those books. Five Dragons. Let Let's get the secrets out of the way first. One of the things I got a game for those of you that have joined us in the chat room. For those of you that have read Five Dragons, uh, I wrote those last year when I was was merely a fan of Geek Gab and and not quite the fully baptized member of the Geek Gab family, but I was a huge fan of the three hosts. So if you have Five Dragons, keep an eye out because I actually include all three of our hosts, Daddy Warpig. Dornall and Brian Niemeyer are in that book, but I'm not going to tell you where they are. That's the game. And I don't know what, what, if, if any of you have, have read the book and actually identified them already, go ahead and shout it out in the chat room and we'll just spoil the surprise for everybody else. That's, that's awesome. What an honor. Yeah. And finding me is going to be hard. I'm, I'm real mysterious. I like to sneak up on you. <laughs> Maybe, uh, you're you're actually one of those that's hiding in plain sight. But th that's all I'll say on that. So five dragons. So and you know you you mentioned pulp revolution. You mentioned a lot of things there. And I I should I should just dive right in and say, hey, listen, um, we've spent a good eighteen months watching Jeffro do what he does so well, and um, about six months ago, enough of us had seen it and learned enough from our guru to start putting putting pencil to the pad. And start producing some works. So, you know, I it, it's no surprise that Jeffro is a, is a fan of the things I've written because I specifically wrote them for him. And you know, I, I say that, but it's it's there's a little bit more to it than that. You know, he is tapping into something primal that has been missing from our culture. And 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 when I say culture, I mean both the science fiction and fantasy culture, uh, it, specifically, and also our culture at large. And and it's starting to flare up on social media again with people talking about about film in particular, where you do not see any feminine women. There are no feminine heroes anymore. And so all of my books, when I write men and women, I write the kind of men and women that I see in the real world, not the kind of women that I wish existed in the real world. And part of that is also due to what Daddy Warpig calls his BS tax. I'm presenting a story that has a thunder lizard that breathes fire. That's a lot of BS to, to wrap your head around. If I then include a woman, a woman who is 120 pounds and punches like a 300-pound linebacker, I, I, I've got to scale back on the BS somewhere else. And so you get stories like those in, in Five Dragons, that have genuine people going through these fantastic events. And it really resonates a lot more with people because they can get their hands around the, the, the more mundane aspects of the story than you can launch out in all kinds of different directions in the fantastic elements of the story. So if you want to see how it's done, Sudden Rescue, Five Dragons. Um. I've read Sudden Rescue, uh, and I even did a pocket review on it on the Castelli House blog, but uh, I thought it was a great book. I thought it was very entertaining, um, and I was very, very happy that you just skipped over all of the boring parts. I mean, I remember in specific, at one point, the main character says, well, I've got to go over and do this and this and that, and then we immediately skipped to like two weeks later because everything inside that everything that happened after that was was boring stuff you didn't need to have on screen and and I compare that to so many other authors who seem to feel the need to put every single scene uh, on on the page whether it makes whether it's if there's anything exciting happening or not sure and you know part of that is I, I'm telling I'm telling the story about the trucker and the princess and when he has to go take care of financial arrangements, I mean, who wants to read about accounting? Give me a break. And in particular, you know, we live in a, a blessed age where a book that that is 150 to 200 pages long has the same amount of upfront production costs, thanks to the miracle of Kindle, as a book that's 700 pages long. So, you know, I, there, there's no longer any need to pad out a book with an extra 100 pages just to get that page count, just to make the doorstopper so people feel they're getting their money's worth. The, the economies of scale have changed dramatically, so you don't need to worry about that anymore. Oh, it's completely changed. It's turned everything on its head. It's amazing. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, by the way, is about Five Dragons. 
you wrote it in a very interesting fashion and had some and uh i'm talking about now you were on jim fear 138's podcast uh about a week ago um and you spoke about how you wrote five dragons and had some really interesting advice for writers just in case there's anybody listening who didn't also listen to that podcast naughty naughty people um could you tell people how you assembled five dragons Sure. So that's the first book I've ever written. And I wasn't sure that I had it in me to sit down and write a doorstopper. I wasn't even sure I had it in me to write a book like Sudden Rescue. That's only, I think it amounts to about 180 pages. But I figured I could write a novella. Now, a novella is about 20,000 words. You know, you could do that in a month if you're sitting down about 1,000 words a night. So I said, okay, you know what, first I'm going to write a novella. But in case this works out, what I'd like to be able to do is sell people an 80 to 100,000 word product. So I specifically sat down with an eye towards what's my theme and variation going to be on the ultimate end goal. And then I, you know, so in this case, it was, I have not read a decent killing a dragon story in a long time. For the last 25 years, dragons have been allies and mysterious godlike beings. And, you know, I prefer them as a destructive force of nature. You go down into dungeons to fight the dragons. You don't engage in pol political maneuverings with dragons. So I said, okay, I'm going to write a bunch of stories about fighting dragons. Well, you got to keep it fresh. If it's just four guys with swords beating on a giant lizard, it's going to get to be the same thing over and over. So I said, okay, I'm going to write four stories. And the first one is going to be a fighter type. The second one is going to be a thief type. The third one is going to be a cleric type and or a wizard type. And then the fourth one will be the cleric. So I hit all four of the iconic archetypes in each of those stories. And then I also change up the kind of dragon that they're fighting. In one story, it's just a big dumb lizard. In another story, it's a clever godlike being that needs to be outwitted. In another one, it's a demonic being so that you actually have the four kinds of fight, whether it's strength, wisdom, dexterity. And here I'm really letting my geek flag fly. But you can see how now you've got four stories that are completely standalone independent. They, they all exist on different worlds as far as I'm concerned. But as you sit down to read this, you've got four. But for the sake of the reader, now you don't have to, you, you don't necessarily have to dedicate 80,000 words worth of reading time. You can pick one up and read it in a weekend. And then when you have another weekend with some reading time free, you can pick up the other one. So you combine those all four together. So for budding artists, I rec for budding authors, I highly recommend that because it, it gives you a way to give people a taste of what you have to offer. Here's a novella for a buck. Here's another novella for a buck. Well, now here's a full-blown book, if you like those, for 3 or $4. So it becomes a situation of, you know, you could buy three, get one free at that point. And then you throw in one extra short story just to kind of sweeten the pot. And the only way to get that fifth story is to buy the full collection. So if you do have fans who are completists, that's how you roll. That's ingenious. You know that. How have you found that model to be working? I'm I'm really curious. I you know it's it's working out great because um, you know big long convoluted plots like you see in Soul Cycle take a lot of uh, you got to be super smart to write those. You have to maintain a lot of information in your head all at one time. with four kids I'm trying to raise, it's not often that I get the amount of time, that kind of time to sit and dedicate that much brain power to one area. Um, you know, the sales for somebody that, that was completely out of the scene 12 months ago, even uh, to have the kind of, of support that I've gotten from guys like you from the Castalia house blog and Jim fear, that's really been the, the, the key to it. Uh, but financially, I can't imagine writing a 600-word book and having nearly as many people take a flyer on, you know, a five, six, seven-dollar book. And that's what you have right. to do these days with self-publishing. If you don't have the resources of a New York City publishing house at your back, if you don't have them blowing wind in the sails of your your creakly prepared and, and leaky boat, then you know you've got to find alternative ways of, of of reaching people and and you know staying lean and mean and nimble. Is, is definitely one way to do that. Exactly. Well, I've definitely seen you hustling, getting your name out there, man. So, so Godspeed, William. We need more. We need more like you. I've always said that when anyone's asked if, you know, I, I'm an all wary of all the new guys getting into the scene, I'm like, no, because we, we need it to grow. Every new person that comes in, 
grows the market. It's not a zero sum game. So the, the more the merrier. Absolutely. I, I've tried to do the same thing, get as many people in as possible because I don't, I don't look at it as building an audience so much as I do building a culture. Um, we might be in a zero sum game if, you know, let's say 95% of the population were regular readers that they were buying and reading material all the time. We, that might have become a zero-sum game um, because then the only way you would gain readers is by taking away attention from other things. But for writers right now, we have vast amounts of audience that are underserved and vast amounts of audience that are just not active readers, but who could be active readers if they had material that, that met their needs. If they had material that entertained them, that enlightened them, that spoke to them, and far too many people, I think there's a massive underserved market of people who are not active readers right now, but if we could reach them and interest them in what's going on uh, in the pulp revolution, I think that they could become active readers. And so we have not only an opportunity to expand to people who are currently reading, but also to expand to people who are not reading, but who might become readers. Or who once were readers. I, I backed away from the genre for 20 years because it wasn't serving my needs. It I, wasn't until I discovered Castalia House that I started drifting back. I stopped reading regularly in the science fiction and fantasy genres um, in about 1994, 1995. I started reading uh, specifically stuff for research for role-playing games and stuff. And most of the stuff I read and, and dealt with were role-playing games. Um, the mainstream genre, the fantasy books, the science fiction books, they just weren't worth it anymore. They were uh, and I didn't even think about it. I wasn't even conscious of it. It was just like I went to where things that interested me were. And I didn't even think about the fact that I had stopped buying and stopped reading mainstream published science fiction and fantasy works. Indeed. Indeed. You just you just fade away. And, and But that's the challenge. And I'm not sure how to, you know, if it, the, the first person to really solve that challenge of how to reach the people that have faded away again is going to make a million bucks. You know, I th there, there's a lot of good hustlers out there. I think that uh, I think that uh, John Delaraz is doing a fantastic job. I think he's rattling all the right cages. Uh, Jim Fear is, you know, I think a lot of there's what I'm finding is a lot of the guys in the Manosphere are have similar stories to tell that, you know, they were were huge readers and they drifted away because the people writing stories and it's not just fantasy and science fiction. It's pretty well across the board. They just stopped. There just wasn't anything there for them. And and when you go in and, and you see a couple of articles, when you kind of kick in the doors and say, hey, you know, there are people out there doing what you what what you want, ready ready to meet your needs. Here they are. Then, you know, they'll come. I ju I'm just hoping they'll bring their friends with them. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think of this. I read an interesting article on the Z-Man blog where he was talking about specifically the uh, SJW convergence of Marvel Comics. And just how they've taken this dramatic ideological slant and their sales are tanking. And he was kind of responding to John's article in The Federalist. And uh, Z-Man said, John's right, but he's got it backwards. It's not that, you know, these entryists came in and took over and said, okay, we're going to publish what we want now. And that destroyed the market. It's the fact that the market was already in decline and that allowed the the editors to recruit the entryists because they came in, they were bought up by big international media conglomerates who basically made them failure proof so they could they could get away with anything. They didn't have to turn a profit. They just became like incubators for IPs, right? A lot of people, a lot of uh, SJWs are really, really big on selling the snake oil that they're social issues are the key to big sales. In specific, their claim is if you have five characters, four of which are racial or sexual or, uh, you know, whatever minorities, that automatically you'll tamp into women. Automatically, if you have a black character, black people will want to read. Automatically, if you have an Asian character, Asian people will want to read. That the only thing you have to do is put those kinds of characters in there just to be those kinds of characters, and you will get people reading. And so if you are either you know, social justice inclined already, or very, very desperate and kind of gullible, you may buy that. Because on the surface, it sounds 
plausible. Oh yeah, of course, if we have more people, uh, more black characters in Marvel Comics, obviously we will sell to more black people and that will stop this decline of our sales that's been going on ever since the collector's market collapsed in the 1990s. But it turns out to not be the case. It turns out that regular readers want good stories. Regular readers want uh, great and moving stories with heroes in their superhero comics. Oddly enough, regular people, when they read superhero comics, are actually looking for heroes. And it doesn't matter to them if the character is white or black or Indian or uh, you know, Korean or whatever, it matters to them if the character is interesting, it matters to them if the writing is great, and it matters to them if the story is moving and it touches them. And so all of the snake oil that SJWs were selling, they were selling it to movies, they were selling it to comics, they were selling it to video games, and still on. What they're saying is, this will solve any sales problems you have, and it turns out to not be the case. Yeah, I mean, empirically, there's really no arguing with that. But well, one of the implications is, is that I think that we are unlikely to see Marvel learn from this, at least in the, the long term, because it really doesn't matter how far their sales go down unless the backlash starts threatening Disney, because Marvel, Marvel as a publishing house only exists to maintain Disney's IPs and copyrights so they can keep making movies. Right. The print edition is a loss leader. Mm -hmm. So if they're losing money, they're, they're pretty much okay with that. Right. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, but, but it's something I think they'll come to accept as long as they aren't losing too much money too fast. I, something seems to have bothered them though, because they're at least trying to change directions just from the, I mean, Marvel used to dominate comics. They used to be like 80% or 75% of comic sales were Marvel comics. And now they're down to like 25% of the market. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember these numbers. I apologize if I got them uh, wrong. You know, anybody in the chat, if you know better, uh, if you can correct me on that, then, you know, feel free to do so. I don't, I don't care. Um, but they have had a massive drop in sales, which has put pressure on... Uh, comic book stores all over the country they've saw a massive drop in sales which some of those people they run or most of those people maybe all those people run on, on really really thin margins and so when marvel shot itself in the foot you know everybody else started going out of business or having to cut back on a lot of stuff because they lost a lot of sales they lost a lot of customers and just like with science fiction and fantasy when you drive people away from science fiction and fantasy by and large they stop reading at all and so when you drew marvel drove people away a lot of comic fans just stopped buying comics and that hurts not just who's buying right now not just who will buy next month next month's issue that hurts for decades because that means that they're not going to be buying comics a year from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now when their kids start to grow up their kids aren't going to be buying comics they didn't get the habit from you know mom and dad and destroying your customer base like that driving your customer base like that it's very very difficult to get it back once consumer buying habits change once someone gets used to let's say movies and video games instead of buying comics then it's very very difficult to entice them back to comics as an art form and it's very very difficult to maintain the uh, their interest in comics as an art form and that's the same challenge that science fiction and fantasy is facing today yeah, exactly. And that actually brings up something that we were talking about before the show, because, John, you've been looking through this year's Hugo finalists. God help me, I have. <laughs> All right, well, let's back up a step. First things first. One of the things that I've noticed is that all of the coverage of, of the Hugos is all identity politics. Every the you know they they change the rules in the voting for those of you that aren't following this very closely, they have been so disgusted by people who are good at games gaming the system and beating them at their own game. They change the rules. So the way the rules work this year is that everybody gets a seat at the table. No one gets to have them all, 
and it doesn't matter how well you coordinate, um, you you are going to see somebody from Tor in every category, and you're going to see someone from Castalia House in every category, with very few exceptions. So everyone is celebrating now that the Castalia House authors and contributions have been relegated to not sweeping the awards. So this is this is what they take as a victory. But the, they can't talk about it in terms of Tor versus Castalia House. So they have to find alternative storylines. And the storyline they've adopted this year is that it's fantastic that this is finally we've got really good stories because they're all written by women. And particularly the novelette category, there was a spate of articles talking about how the only man in the novelette is the the, the now they consider it a, a joke nominee the uh, sticks his cock with his eight see I can't even remember is it alien stripper it's a dinosaur something T Rex I can't remember what it is I believe thank you well of course sticks is a woman so they had to quickly <laughs> backtrack and say uh, well it turns out the novelette nominees were swept by women and. I had asked a number of people, well, yes, are they any good? And the response was always, didn't you hear me? I said they were written by a, women, by a woman. Uh, and I noticed that there's no one really talking about any of the books that are nominated. So I said, okay, well, listen, I'm, I'm you know, and it maybe, maybe I'm biased because I tend to run in the pulp revolution circles. But I went out looking and, and I still couldn't find anything on, on that side of the issue like the Puppy of the Month book club, like the Castalia House conversations. There was no conversation about the actual works themselves. And, you know, a number of people said, and to my way of thinking, these people are not actual fans of the works that they claim to be fans of. When I'm a fan of something, I don't shut up about it. Right. I tell everybody, hey, you got to go listen to this geek gab. These guys are hilarious and insightful and uh, and sometimes a little annoying, but but annoying in a good way. So... You know, I, I essentially called them out in a couple of different places, and I had a few people say, yeah, well, I read them all. And I said, okay, well, where are you talking about them? And they keep pointing me to articles that, hey, well, they're written by women. Okay, okay. So I said, but, you know, maybe it's a little hypocritical of me to be discounting these works without reading them myself. And so I, I looked at the categories, and I said, you know, I, I kind of know how this is going to go. I'm not going to waste time reading a full novel. I'm not even going to waste time reading a novella. So I've committed to reading all of the novelettes that I can get my hands on. And the couple that I've read are grim. Oh, they're grim. Uh, uh, Alyssa Wong is nominated in the best novelette for a book called You'll Surely Drown Here If You Stay. And I have a full, it's just, I have a full analysis coming out on uh, Seagull Rising on Monday. But basically, I, what I'm finding is it's the opposite of what I've seen a lot of in the Pulp Revolution. Wong is a very gifted writer who has a great idea for a story, but is so enamored of the literary tricks and gimmicks that she shoots herself in the foot. She's got no, a couple of, just over, she's just over and over and over. She's using these same tricks. The, the, to, to give you an idea, it's written in second person. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I you know that's, that's a good a trick. Season. Yeah, it, and it's a good trick. I like that trick if you use it in the right way, and you use it for the right reasons. And she just doesn't. She does it just to because it's kind of weird. Well, okay, I understand it's a weird tale, but if that that's not appropriate, sweetheart. So <laughs> you, you get it, and that's what's really aggravating is you know if these people would stop focusing on on the tricks and start focusing on the stories, they'd probably be a lot better. But, but from everything I've read, it's just, it's another case of people who are so desperate for love that they don't care that their work actually sucks as long as the right people say they like it. And Nathan Housley in the chat just asked how many of those writers are uh, clarion workshop graduates. And that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I can definitely see that. And it is, and it is to see that kind of potential wasted, is actually more aggravating to me than reading somebody like, um, you know, everybody's favorite whipping horse, John Scalzi, who doesn't have a whole lot of talent. Um, you know, when you read one of his books and it's just top to bottom, you know, front to back, it's just bad in every way, shape and form, then at least you go, okay, that's a bad novel. But when you see someone like a Melissa Wong, that's just wasting her talents, it's just, it just aggravates me. Yeah, it's, 
it's really frustrating. And th- there was someone in a comment on the Castile House blog this week, and I apologize because you're probably listening, who said, or listening or coasting, who said that all these new writers have, have these tools, right? All the writers of generation, they, they have this toolbox full of tools, but they don't know how or why to use them. Yeah. Yep. I, I've got a theory on that. And it, and yes, I'm still part of the show. Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, I've got a theory on that and it's in, it, and I could be completely full of crap, but it could be, could be deep and meaningful, which is, I think we're looking at the broader cultural implications of the boomer generation where mm-hmm. folks like us who are coming up and we haven't had the best role models in terms of uh, gender <laughs> roles or, or heroes and, and heroines. And, and, and that's something we talked about on this show before. So I think if you stretch it just a little bit, I see that happening among the writers as well, where they're learning the technical aspects of the trade, but they don't know what a good story is. They don't know what a hero is. They don't know what a good character is. Uh, and furthermore, they're, they're trying to um, push those buttons that, on the Skinner box that, that make them feel good about, uh, you know, making sure that it, it, you're inclusive, making sure you're trying to make everybody happy if possible and that sort of thing. I, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's also some truth to the, you know, a lot of the people that are, are writing the stuff that I really like these days are have at least seen their 35th birthday. And from what I gather, a lot of the Hugo nominees are still on the wrong side of 30 to be telling people, you know, lessons about life, love and and loss. Um, It's it's difficult. You know, I I look back to me at the age of 29, even 35, I would not have been capable of writing the books that I write today because I simply didn't have the experience and the wisdom to have anything worth listening to. And 35 is not that far away from where I am right now. I think that's a big part of it, too, that, you know, when you have a culture that worships youth, uh, that's all well and good when you're talking about a visual medium like television or movies. But when it comes to the written word and when it comes to trying to say something profound, you're not going to get that out of a 29-year-old. And I think that's part of the issue as well. That You're right. The, 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 the generations coming up, don't they don't they're so far removed from even the sort of films that, that I absorbed on Saturday afternoon when cartoons were over, you know, your, your Rio Bravos and, and the, you know, the, the movie of the week or the million dollar movie that, you know, they look back and their, their old timey movies are back to the future. Hmm. Wow. I, I just don't think that you're going to get the same kind of, of, clarity and wisdom out of that generation you know in 20 years you know keep honing your craft keep keep looking around the world and keep approaching it from a point of view of how does the world work rather than how do i want it to work and i think they're going to be capable of some great things i'm really looking forward to that but we're not getting it right now except from the pulp revolution that's right i seem to call war pig correct me if i'm wrong writing something about how just the, the past is just getting memory hold and it's closer and closer. What's considered to be an, an old movie or an old book, that definition goes from like 50 years to 30 years to 20 years to last year. I, I don't know if I wrote about that. I know, uh, I know Jeffro does. I know I've mentioned something like that. I don't remember yeah. a specific article like that, but fair enough. Um, well, let's uh, let's skip subjects real quick. Is there, other than the Pulp Revolution, um, is there any uh, any author that you discovered recently that you're excited about? Mm, that's a good question. Um, Nothing's leaping to mind right now. Can I punt and circle back around to this in a little bit? Sure. Okay. Um, let, me, let me do this real quick, because I actually said we were going to get to the news later. I, well, all right. H- hang on. L- l- actually, I can't answer that right now. Um, uh, you know, it, it's an easy answer, but John C. Wright is, is phenomenal. 
I have only discovered him, you know, I discovered him relatively recently. I've only been reading him for about a year and a half now, but, but he's another guy that, that really opened my eyes to, to how easy it is to recapture the lost science fiction of my youth. I, I'm a big fan of the superversives. I just did the audio recording for forbidden thoughts, which is a superversive press. Uh, and you know, I, I enjoyed the stories in that book tremendously. Uh, so there's a lot of familiar names in there, uh, whether it's, you know, El Jaji Lamplighter or, you know, the aforementioned John C. Wright. Uh, so I, I, I'm a big Superversives fan, um, but I, I, I've, I've staked my, my flag inside the camp of the Pulp Revolutionaries because a big part of what, what I do, you know, I, I do appreciate what the Superversives are doing. I do appreciate the need for injecting wonder and the explicitly Christian worldview into the works that you read. I love, and I, I know they don't, they, they like to kind of walk that back a little bit and just say, you know, look to a higher plane. But, but the, the things that resonate with me are the, the Christian themes. If you're resonating to a higher Buddhist plane, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. So, you know, the authors that I like are the guys like John C. Wright, where in the middle of a story, there's a fight going on inside a downtown Christmas tree. And it turns out the Christmas tree is alive because Christmas trees have a power that's granted to them by their very nature. I, I love that stuff. I, I don't think I'm capable of it. And uh, I think there's there there has to be room in the culture for both the overt and the the covert introduction of those themes. The, the books that I write do not present Jesus in the form of a, of a brass lion roaring and scaring demons away. I much prefer the more down-to-earth situations where a trucker finds himself in the middle of an intergalactic crisis that could spell the end of humanity and has a choice between just going about his daily business and stepping up and doing what needs to be done. I prefer that kind of ground-level daily reminder that as you go through your life, you're going to be encountering these situations and, you know, trying to steep the reader in the notion of do the right thing, even when it's hard and, you know, stand up for right, even in the small acts. Well, so does, does that answer your question? Sure. Fantastic. Why not? It was a lot of words. We'll, we'll use it. <laughs> no, that, that I remember reading that scene. And thinking, this wouldn't work if any other author besides John C. Wright wrote this. But because he wrote it, it, it totally does. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to figure out why. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I had a similar experience. I just read his Count to a Trillion. Um, <laughs> my first introduction to John C. Wright's actual work. And, uh, and there was a little bit in there. And it wasn't very subtle either. It had to do with uh, marriage. Um, not very, not very subtle at all. But at the same time, it it worked into the story, and I noticed it. But it was sort of, uh, it was interesting. Then, and, and those sorts of things do belong in fiction that isn't, well, for lack of a better word, preachy. Sure. And it it reminds me of a a conversation I recently read on on a forum full of gay racist bodybuilders. But it was a really interesting conversation about uh, C.S. Lewis versus Tolkien. Where C.S. Lewis, or sorry, where Tolkien supposedly didn't like Lewis's overt allegory, but if you pay attention to Lord of the Rings, uh, it's full of um, it's full of subtle, um, you know, subtle Christian meaning. And and he didn't. And remember, Tolkien wrote a history of Earth, but it's our still our Earth. Sure. Uh, so. Yeah, I saw you post that, and I laughed. That was hilarious. Um. Well, we are, uh, well, we're way over time today. Um, so before we kick this off, before we leave, let me ask if, uh, if there's anything else you want to, you want to say, uh, Mr. Mollison. Zero. Daddy Warpig, we can't go one episode without you doing that to us. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's disconnected again. It's possible. Uh, he, he is uh, far out in a very distant part of the world, and so uh, we're just lucky to, that he's been close enough to regular speeding to the show at all. What, what about you, uh, uh, Dornall? Is there anything else you want to say before we take off? 
No, actually, there was something I really wanted to talk about while it was uh, timely, and it looks like uh, John's dropped for good. Maybe he'll be back in a minute. But uh, I wanted to talk about geek news this week. Uh, we just saw in the last day or two the trailer to the latest Star Wars garbage, I mean movie, that's coming out uh, in December. I was wondering if I could get your guys' take on the trailer. Yes, you can. <laughs> Should I go first? Go for it, Do Brian. It. Yeah, I'm going to quote Jim Figure 138, who perfectly summed up my sentiments on the Last Jedi trailer in his tweet, mentioning that Disney is totally out of ideas when they are basically mining ideas that 12 year old him thought were cool for his West End games, Star Wars game. Okay. Wow, that's mean. But it's true. Because, yeah, I. I watched the thing twice and like, wow, none of this looks fun. It just, it just doesn't. It looks like they're going full, just like the full moral relativism on the force, um, which prompted me to opine that, yeah, the force remains the worst thought out magic system in mainstream SFF. It didn't bother me so much, but I'll tell you why. I actually watched the trailer without sound. I just... <laughs> I muted that junk and looked at the images, and they put together, it looks like it's going to be Star Wars-themed stuff blowing up. Anime girl with magic powers. i got to try that. I recommend it. It's, it's not so bad when you turn the sound off. Um, me on Taster, uh, who is a uh, uh, Twitter mainstay um pointed out that the poster to the movie is shaped exactly like the gray jedi logo and at the at another point in the movie when luke's looking through some papers or somebody's looking through some papers those papers also have on them the gray jedi logo and so um hey i'm back okay The Great Jedi, I don't know all that much about because I never read the extended universe stuff uh, other than the really, really old school Han Solo and and Lando Calrissian trilogy from the 70s. I mean, that's ancient stuff I've read, but I never read any of the Admiral Thrawn stuff or anything later. So I don't know all that much about what the Great Jedi were in the extended universe, but I do know that putting their logo on a piece of paper in the trailer and putting their logo basically on the poster definitely points towards going to uh you know saying well what we really need is balance for the force so we need people who are neither light side nor dark side which kind of um even though the Mm -hmm. forces background is kind of morally incoherent at the same time there was definitely heroes and there's definitely villains and you are never going to make a good star wars movie where there is no hero and villain where the hero is somebody who says, well, we need a little bit of villainy and we need a little bit of heroism. It's just nonsense. Yeah, that's what Jim Fear was talking about. I, I totally agree. It reminds me of uh, Nice of the Old Republic 2, where the, the coolest and most interesting thing about that was actually the main villain was not pure dark-sided. They tried to be as gray as possible with that character. It worked in the video game. Um, you you had mentioned this also, uh, John, before the show started. Did you have an opinion about the Star Wars trailer? Uh, nothing that you guys haven't already said. Um, I'm I'm pretty much over Star Wars. Um, I'll say this: if they really wanted to make the Force interesting, then what they would do is they would treat the Force much as much the same way that that Tolkien treated the Ring. You know, the Force is literally power, and if you really want to show how the dark side operates, you would show people trying to use that power for good and having that good corrupted. And if they were to treat it as a power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And you've got this constant turnover of people trying to cheat and use it for good and thereby slowly succumbing. Then boy, howdy, you would have a never ending litany of villains from that. Mm. But that doesn't fit with the current paradigm, which says that, no, no, you can do bad things for good reasons. And if you're a bad person, that doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. Right. So, you know, it doesn't work. But 
I'm a bit of a 40K fanboy, so of course I'd think tapping into the warp will eventually result in you being tainted. <laughs> so it would at least be internally consistent. That's all I'm asking for. Yep. All right. Do you, do you have any uh, last minute thoughts before we take off, John? Yeah. Let me just w tell you guys about a couple of projects that are coming out here in the short term. Uh, I have a new book that'll be out probably by the end of this month, maybe mid next month called The Stars and the Moon. It's a post-apocalyptic story that takes a couple of surprising turns. And, and I mean surprising. It, it starts off Gamma World and then goes full-blown new wave author somewhere about the, the halfway point. And then uh, a couple of anthologies coming out. For those of you that aren't aware, Misha Burnett is putting together a 21st century uh, pulp modern action. There'll be a little bit of weirdness in it. I can guarantee you that. Uh, I don't know who all, I've seen a number of the names that are in it. A lot of names you recognize. It's going to be a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, that's still kind of churning beneath the surface. And then Bryce Beatty is putting out a, he's basically doing for modern action and adventure what Alexander has done with Kursova. He's putting together a semi-pro zine, and I was fortunate enough to have my work selected to be included in that anthology as well. So look out for Story Hack and the as-yet-untitled 21st Century Pulp Action coming from Misha Burnett. Um, Brian, do you have any last words before we take off? Well, man, Dornall got in all the plugs from my work early, so okay. no, I'm good. <laughs> All right, uh, let me talk about the news. Uh, we are currently in the planning for two Geek Gab Gaiden, uh, and Gaiden's a Japanese word meaning side story, two Geek Gab Gaiden podcasts, which may or may not be a regular thing. Um, Doranal is going to start doing a, a podcast about D&D, &D, about Dungeons & Dragons, and about his campaign having, uh, you know, RPG related bloggers and stuff on as a guest. Um, and that should be coming together sometime around the end of this month. Um, and then Brian is working on a his own podcast, his own Geek Gab podcast about writing and writers and things like that. We've had a lot of requests for both of those things from the listeners and from people in the chat. So um, because we haven't had a haven't had enough time to get to those really in depth in the main podcast. Uh, they're both starting their own uh, sub podcasts for Geek Gab to uh, explore those issues more in depth. I don't know how regularly those are going to be or whatever, all those details are up in the air, but uh, they are coming together. So you should see them sometime, uh, you know, near the end of this month or sometime next month. Also, um, Jesse Lucas, uh, who is in the chat right now, is putting together an anthology of um, some of the lesser-known Pulp Revolution authors. And the central idea is based on, around a new wave, uh, a new wave anthology where they started with a one-page description of the basic outline of the story, and then each of the five authors took that one-page description and went off in their own direction, and then you had the five people... Um, five, you know, mainstream authors, including Harlan Ellison and, uh, you know, really fairly big name authors who went off and uh, did their own thing. So what Jesse Lucas is doing with his um, anthology, seven, five of the lesser known pulp revolution writers who are going to come on and they're going to read an introduction that is about three lines and then take off from that introduction and go off in their own directions and do five stories from that. Now, I mentioned this because he asked me to write the introduction. He asked me to write the first few lines of the stories that they're going to take off in. And I have written those and I have, um, I have turned those in. And so uh, I've turned that in. And so that should be, uh, I don't know when that's coming out, but uh, I have, <laughs> I have contributed precisely three lines of writing to, um, to that specific uh, anthology. So when that comes out, we will let you know so you can go and check those out. And last but not least, probably the most popular show we've maybe ever done. We had Jeff Rowe from, uh, of Appendix and Fame. We had Razorfoot from YouTube, and we had the writer John C. Wright all on the same show to discuss Pulp, uh, The Shadow, and, and various things like that. So people were asking for a return engagement of those three. And uh, we have been trying to get that put together for the last month or so. We finally got the last confirmation just today, literally just this morning. So on 
Saturday, April 29th, which is in two weeks, assuming that things go well. On the show, we will have John C. Wright, Razor Fist, and Jeff Rowe talking about pulp. Last time the show went about an hour and a half, so it's probably going to be a longer show than usual. And uh, everyone who has asked for that and everyone who's looked forward to that, those all three of them have confirmed that that day is uh, free for them and they're going to be coming on Geek Gab to talk about pulp stuff again. So uh, we're really looking forward to that. I'm sure those of you in the audience who saw it, Oh, did I say the wrong name? Oh, I am so sorry. I am time. so sorry. Um, uh, I'm embarrassed now. Okay. But anyways, uh, all three of them are uh, <laughs> have agreed to come on the show. And so in about two weeks, we're going to do that. Um, I have no idea what we're doing in, uh, in one week. Um, I'm sure we have got something scheduled I just forgot about, or we will come up with something to talk about in a week. So... Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank uh, John for uh, agreeing to come on the show. And, uh, and oh, we've got another announcement, by the way. Uh, Kursova Magazine, um, the editor of which P. Alexander is in the chat right now, uh, is opening up uh, for 2018 subscriptions, or 2018 submissions. If you want to submit a story to be put in the 2018 issues of Kursova, Get it ready. He'll be opening up submissions in about six weeks. So uh, we did an entire show with him, and, and links to Kursova uh, are you can find him there. Um, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks for everybody who come in to participate in the chat. We uh, we appreciate all of you, and we uh, can be found on iTunes. Just do a search for Geek Gab. We can be found on uh, the Google Play Store. Download the Google Play Store to your Amazon device, any Amazon device that supports it, and uh, just do a search for GeekGab. We'll be available there. We, of course, are available on YouTube.com slash GeekGab, YouTube.com slash GeekGab. And for those of you that wish to remain free, from the uh, slimy tentacles of corporate America, we are also available on SoundCloud. You can download any of uh, our podcasts in those three locations. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for today. Uh, we are signing out for now. But don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.